Billy Graham once told uh, about a time that he was uh, in a small town and he needed to get to the post office. And so he asked this little boy for directions. And when the boy had given them to him, Mr. Graham said uh, that he would like to invite him to the crusade that he was leading that evening. He said, you want to come to the crusade tonight? You can hear me tell everyone how to get to heaven. And the boy said, I, I don't think so. You don't even know how to get to the post office. How does one get to heaven? I, I remember being at a meeting with a gentleman who confidently said that there were many paths to heaven. And and he pointed at his hand and it had five fingers that head up his arm. And he said, you know, all religions lead to God. All religious faith leads to everlasting life. On October 25th, 1964, at the San Francisco Stadium, the 49ers were pro playing the Minnesota Vikings. It was the fourth quarter when the 49ers running back fumbled the ball and the le legendary Minnesota defensive end Jim Marshall picked it up. He scooped up the fumble and he began to run, but he'd gotten turned around and he started running the wrong way and he didn't stop until he had raced 66 yards into the wrong end zone where he tossed the ball off the field, uh, unfortunately scoring a safety for the 49ers. Now here's the question I wanna ask this morning. Is there a right uh, and a wrong end zone in the spiritual game of life? Is Christianity the correct end zone to which we ought to be running or does it matter? I have to tell you that in, this, in today's secular world, this is hardly an academic question. We're uh, talking about the hard sayings of Jesus, and we were devoting the first uh, messages in this series to the hard to understand or hard to accept sayings of Jesus. And the last half, we were going to devote to the hard to apply sayings of Jesus. Now, the statement that I'm going to give you this morning is a hard to accept statement, but many of you are going to say this isn't hard to believe because you've already embraced it, but it is a hard stay saying for most of the world to accept. And here it is. The saying of Jesus is that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to God but by me. Now, in that one succinct statement, Jesus lays claim to be the only road that leads to eternal life, the only path that leads to the creator, the only track that leads to resurrection after death and to immortality. In that one statement, he lays claim to an exclusivism that rules out the plurality of, uh, of religions, or, or I might say the equality of the plurality of all other religions. How can Jesus make that claim? How can that claim possibly be true? Well, we find that claim in John chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 14, and we're going to find ourselves immersed in that text throughout, uh, throughout the morning. And in the conversation that, that Jesus records for us, or excuse me, I should say that John records for us that Jesus had with his followers, there are six specific statements that Jesus is going to make that people find very, very hard to accept. Some may find them even hard to understand how Jesus is making that statement or what he actually means by that statement. 
But before we look into them, let's let's set the context for the passage, because I think that's really, really important. It's the night of the Passover. The Lord's Supper happens on this night. In fact, it's already happened when we come to the text that we're looking at. And uh, you'll remember he takes the Passover meal, the Lord Jesus does, and he forever changes it and says, you know, from now on, when you celebrate this meal and at other times, you're actually going to be celebrating the fact that I am going to make a new covenant with you. You remember he's washed the feet of his disciples. And then he says in verse 33 of chapter 13 of John, he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me just as I said to the Jews. So now I'm also saying to you where I am going, you cannot, you cannot come. Now he follows up that statement that, hey, I've told the other guys, I'm telling you where I'm going, you cannot come. He follows it up and he says, now I'm telling you this, love one another. New commandment I give to you that you love one another. All the commandments of the Bible are summed up in this love one another. Now, Peter wants to know where he's going. And he says to Jesus, I will follow you anywhere, anywhere you're going. Even even I'm willing to die for you. Of course, that's where ultimately Jesus is going. He's going to die And Peter says, I'll follow you there. And Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, the truth is that you will not follow me there anytime soon, but you will follow me there lately. But now, that is tomorrow, Jesus says, you're going to deny me. And of course, we know that he does. But evidently, there's this soberness, maybe even a sadness that that sets in over the room where Jesus finds himself with these key followers of his. And, uh, and, and it's in that context now that Jesus utters these very familiar words. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Now, most likely you've heard these these words before. And there's probably a really good chance that you heard these words in the context of a funeral. And what you are told and what we hear Jesus saying quite often is something like this. You have believed God. Now believe what I am telling you. Up in heaven where God lives, he has a big house. And there's lots of rooms in that house. And I'm going off to heaven to prepare one of those rooms for each of you. Because you know I'm going off to heaven to work on your room, I will come again to take you back to my father's house in heaven. So where I am there in heaven, you can be too. We've had this picture our entire lives, I guess, that Jesus comes back from heaven to take our loved one, his immortal soul, back to heaven to be with him and to live with him in his heavenly house. And let me just say this, that very well may be what Jesus means in this context. That very well may be what he's saying. But I want to share with you something that I've been, I've been thinking. Actually, I was thinking this before Shep died, right? And, and I've thought an awful lot about it since Shep died because of, of not, not saying the other's not true, but just that this text maybe could be seen somewhat differently. Let me share with you. 
someone challenged me with this, and, um, and when they did, it, it just made a lot of sense to me. When Jesus talked about God's house, the question was asked, what would the disciples hear? In other words, Peter and John, Matthew and Mark, well, not Mark, but uh, Thaddeus and, and the other Judas, not Iscariot. What, what would they have heard that night when Jesus just said to them what I just read to you? And I realized, let's be honest, I realized that what they would have heard is probably not what I was thinking. God's house throughout the Bible is always a reference to God's temple. Always. For instance, Psalm 65, 4. How blessed is the one who you choose to bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. Psalm 84, verse 4. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you, Selah. Same, same Psalm, verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Psalm 116, verse 19. In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I could go on and on, but I realized that the disciples aren't going to be thinking about some cosmic house somewhere off in heaven, but rather they would have been thinking of the Lord's temple. Think about this for just a moment. Three years earlier, Jesus had walked into the temple, and with a whip, he'd cleansed the temple of its money changers. Then again, three years later, just a few days prior to this, he did something almost the same thing. And what he cried in both instances was this, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Every disciple in the room that night, seated on the floor, listening to Jesus, when Jesus said, in my father's house, they would not have thought about a cosmic house off in heaven. They would have thought of his temple. Now, one of the overarching distinctives about God's temple is that the, God's temple was always where God's presence was. God's presence dwelt in his temple, okay? And, and it, first it was the tabernacle made with tents, and then later it would be the temple that David prepared for and Solomon built, okay? It was, it was a place where God committed his presence to. So the temple, Jesus says, could be saying, could be saying, the temple has many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place to you, place for you, in that temple. I think what he may have been saying was, I am going to prepare a place for you in the presence of God forever. Now, if that's, if that's the case, he's going to prepare a place for us. Um, what did he mean when he said, I'm, I'm going to go away? Maybe he meant that he was going away to the cross, that he was getting ready to go and die for us. And that would happen the very next day. He was getting ready to go away to the cross so that all of us could have room in God's, in God's temple, in God's presence. If I go to prepare a place for you by the cross in my death, Jesus says, maybe, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. What does Jesus mean by, I will come again and receive you to myself and where I am, you may be also? Well, he could have meant several things. 
He actually could have meant, hey, I'm getting ready to go to the cross and die for you, but guess what? In three days, I'm going to come again to you. I'm going to rise from the dead, and I am going to purchase for you your salvation. He could have been referencing his resurrection in just three parts of three days. Or he could have been referencing his actual second coming. I'm coming for you. In fact, I I believe with all my heart that the the thing I'm looking forward to is the second coming of Jesus because it's at the second coming of Jesus that all of us will be resurrected from from the dead and I will see my bearded son. Again, I'm assuming he'll still have his beard. I don't know. Do you think they let people have beards in heaven? You know, Jesus had a beard, didn't he? All the pictures have him having a beard, don't they? So, uh, you know, he could be referencing the day that he returns again. And he returns to raise us all from the dead. Or, or, or he could have been talking about coming, the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell us. Think about this for just a moment. Follow me if you would. You don't have to agree with me, but just follow. And I'm not even saying this is where I am. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I really want to open our eyes to this, to this idea that maybe all the things that somebody just spoon-fed us and told us were true maybe aren't necessarily what God means in his word. You know, this morning in Sunday school, Richard was, he was our teacher this morning, and he was talking about digging deeper in the scriptures. We've got to dig in the word of God. And I couldn't agree with you more, Richard. We need to dig into the word of God. And, and so maybe, maybe Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, because guess what? In the, next, the rest of this chapter, and in the chapter after that, and in the chapter after that, Jesus is going to be focusing on the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell us. In just a few minutes, Jesus will say to his disciples in verse 23 of chapter 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come in him and he will come to him, excuse me, and make our abode with him. And who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you heard here is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Here's the thing I want you to know. Jesus, Jesus says that in just a short time, the spirit's going to come and the father and myself, we're going to make our, we're going to come to live with them. We're going to come to live with them. Earlier in the week, Jesus said to his Pharisees, to, to the Pharisees, excuse me, Matthew 23, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who, sent to, who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's what Jesus promised. The temple, God's house, wasn't going to be God's house anymore. And God's house was going to be their house. God's, God's presence was changing addresses. And he says that their house is going to be left to them desolate. No more God will dwell there. Where does God dwell today? 
The Bible says he dwells within us. Paul would say we are the temple of God. Peter would say in second in 1 Peter chapter 2, he would say and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve the stone the builders rejected, this became the very corner. Stone. So it may be that what Jesus is saying is that he's going away to die, but he's coming again. And he's coming to them in the person of the Holy Spirit, and he is going to make it so that all of us can dwell in the presence of God forever because we are now the temple of God. Now, I tell you, this is so, regardless of whether Jesus meant the first thing I shared with you or this thing, I mean, just know this. We are the temple of God, and God dwells within us. Jesus is the cornerstone of that temple that he's building. I mean, he's the foundation and he's it all. And then we are the stones that are being built together in this temple where God's presence dwells. And people need to see the spirit of God dwelling in us and living in us as the people of God. To putting this all together, here's what Jesus may have been saying to them in John 14, 1 through 4. In my father's house, the temple where the presence of God dwells. There is room for all, and I'm leaving you to die on a cross so that you can be with God forever, but I will overcome death when I am resurrected, and I will come and give that life to you. Could be what Jesus is saying there. Regardless of which it is, and you say, why did you do all that? Why don't you just preach 30 minutes and do what John did last week, you know? Why don't you skip all that and, and not try to do that? Because... I, I did that for you this morning because I've tried to share with you what God's been doing in my life. And what God's been doing in my life is challenging me to believe the scriptures wherever they lead me. And to not necessarily assume because someone when I was a new Christian said, this is how it is, that is how it is. And so I need to search the scriptures and the spirit of God is working in me where I want to grow and I want to follow the word of God wherever it leads me, even if I've not been right for many years, even if I've not been right or something, I, I you know, I, there's no shame in that. There's no shame in that. I, I, you know, if I've been wrong, I want to know I'm wrong and I want to follow what's right. So I share that with you. Just to help you see that, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes we're just taught something and we say, well, this is it. But you know, if you look at it from someone else's perspective, it's like, wow, it may be that. And this is where it behooves us by, by his grace to seek his spirit and study his word, show ourselves faithful students of the word of God. All right. So all that out of the way. All right. That leads to Jesus' hard statements. And uh, he says in verse 4, uh, you know the way I'm going. You know, you know the way that I'm, I'm going to do all of this, whatever it is. And, uh, and that prompts Thomas to ask this question. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. 
And Jesus makes that statement or statement, six of them, actually, if you, if you ask me, if you break them down, there's six individual statements here that are really, really hard. So let me share with you what they are. Here's the first one. Here's the first hard statement of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way. And by this, he means that he is the way to know God and to live in God's presence eternally. He, he is the path. Nothing else leads to God. Now, for that Jewish mindset that was listening to that day, listening to that, that evening, he would have been saying to them, it's not circumcision. You know, I mean, the, the big thing going on after Jesus rises from the dead for the Jews was the Gentiles need to be circumcised. The Gentiles need to be circumcised. I mean, that was it. I mean, the sign that Abraham, that God had given to Abraham, they, they have to have that sign. Jesus is saying, it's not the sign. He would have been saying to them, it's not the dietary laws either. That was a big thing for him. Remember Peter? Peter, when the sheet comes down and all the things he's not supposed to eat, Peter says, I've never eaten any of that. Jesus is saying, it's not the dietary laws. He's also saying it's not the sacrificial system. You know the thing that we do every week where we take the lambs and, and we sacrifice them for our sin? Hey, it's not that. It's me. I am the way to eternal life. None of those things. You know, in the context of the church or the church today or for the Gentiles, I think he'd be saying things. It's not your baptism. It, it's, not, it's not your church attendance or your church membership. You know, I remember when, when, when we started going through the roles of our church here and started saying to people who hadn't been in years and years and years, writing them letters and saying, listen, you know, you need to go and find yourself a church family to be a part of and be connected to where you live. And, and people were angry that we removed them from our roles. And I think the reason for that was there's an association that being a part of a, a church or having my name on some kind of church membership role makes me right with God. And Jesus is saying, it's me. It's me. It's not, it's not your church. It's not your church participation even. It's me. I'll tell you something else it's not. It's, it's not being sinless or sinning less. It's Jesus. It's not that I make myself more moral. It's not that I manage to, you know, because Jesus lives within me, I, now I'm, I'm living better. I'm not being as immoral as maybe as I was at one point. That's not what makes me right with God. That's not what Jesus says. It's me. It's me. Now, do you know why this is true? This is true because only Jesus atones for sins. Only the death of Jesus atones for our death. The wages of your sin is death. You will die. Jesus died for you. He died and rose again so that you could rise again too. He atoned for your death. Only Jesus atones for your death. And, and, and when the Bible talks about the second death, we don't die the second death because Jesus died for us the second death. Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. If you want to be reconciled with the creator who loves you, if you want to escape the death that your sin will bring about on your life, and you cannot miss it, you cannot escape it, then, then you must trust in him as the one and only one to build the bridge for you. Number two, Jesus says, 
I, I am the way. Then he says, I am the truth. Now, there's a great argument in our day about objective truth. Many people say there's no such thing as objective truth, that, that all truth is relative. I have my truth. You have your truth. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for, uh, for, for me. That's why so many believe that all religions are equal, because there's no objective truth. There's no objective reality or standard outside of just what I think. Jesus claims otherwise. Jesus says, I am objective reality. I am truth. Now, let me make sure you know the difference between the two. Here's subjective truth. I think the best tasting cookie in the world is oatmeal raisin. (laughs) Oatmeal raisin cookies, the best cookie in the world. You say, no, it's not. It's macadamia nut. And I tell you what, I might almost be wanting to agree with you, okay? But here's my point, right? I mean, oatmeal raisin cookie for me is the, is the best cookie in the world. You can't argue with it. That's a subjective truth. That's what I like best. If you like some other kind of cookie, you know, there's, I mean, it's just, that's subjective for who, who wants it. Objective truth is truth that is not dependent on whether one believes it or not. Objective truth is is like in our world, as we live it here today, gravity in our world is an objective truth. That means whether you believe it or not, if you jump off of a building, you will fall. I mean, you, you just will. I don't care how much you think otherwise, gravity is an objective truth. It's not dependent on whether you believe it or not. Two plus three equals five. It doesn't equal four. It doesn't equal six. I don't care how much you think it does. I don't care how much you say it does. It does not. There's an objective reality there. You know, uh, there's been a lot of talk in the Kavanaugh-Ford hearings this week. And, you know, here's two people that are saying two diametrically opposed things, and they're saying we're 100% sure this is true. Here's the deal, everybody. One of them is not right. One of them is not right because they, they both cannot be right. Because there's an objective standard that's, that's, that's there. By virtue of Jesus' words, we believe the Bible, rightly understood, is objective truth. We, we believe that it's not like, well, I, I want this to be true. I think this is true. Or somebody, you know, no. Jesus says, this is truth. I am truth. And so whatever he said is objective truth. That's what we believe. Consequently, we believe that homosexuality is sin. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many people in our culture want to tell us otherwise. We, we believe Jesus. He, is, he says, I am the truth. I am objective truth. What I say is right. And, and so, you know, we, we live in a day of gender dysphoria. Gender is binary. God created them male and female, the Bible says. Now, does that mean that people, you know, that, you know, we live in a fallen world. People are broken. Does that mean people can't have gender dysphoria or whatever? Of course they can. We believe the sexes are complementarian because God says they are. We cannot change what God says is objective truth just because culture and other people are saying, yeah, it's different. That's not right. That, you know, I believe differently. I don't care if you believe differently. I hold to Jesus as the truth, and so he is objective truth. We will always say that sex before marriage is wrong. So all of you that might think homosexuality is right, wrong, but you think living and sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend or living together, like our culture says, that's what everybody ought to do. I'm sorry. It's never right. 
It's objectively wrong because Jesus told us it's wrong, okay? Sex outside of marriage, everyone, not just before marriage, but sex outside of marriage is always wrong. No matter how much we might want it to be different, in ourselves, and our sinfulness, we might want it to be different, but, but it's not. It's wrong. It'll always be wrong. Injustice will always be wrong. Greed will always be wrong. Gluttony will always be wrong. Selfishness will always be wrong. Pride will always be wrong. I don't care how many people try to tell you otherwise. Jesus said, and this is a hard statement, I am the way. Jesus said, I am the truth. He's the framework of all that we believe. And this is a hard saying because that means you're not your own God. It means you can't decide what you want to be true and what you don't want to be true. Number three, Jesus says, I am the life. Now, I think Jesus meant quality of life, at least in part. You know, earlier in John, Jesus is teaching, John chapter 10, he said, I've come that people might have life and then they might have it abundantly. He says, the thief has come to steal, to kill and destroy, but I came that you might have life abundantly. And I think he's talking about quality of life. And I think Jesus is saying, I've come to, that you might have peace in your life and you might have joy in your life. And I've come to make you a better person because I've come to make you like myself. You know, my daughter my daughter wrote this on her Facebook this morning. Oh, it changed pages on me. Give me just a second. My daughter wrote this this morning. And this is what Jesus came to do. She, she read this, this post on Don't Tell Me God is Good. Here's a quote from the article. Honest that God isn't just good because we get the job or the new house or the miraculous healing. Those always sting the most with me. He's good because he grieves with us and mourns with us and walks with us as he redeems our pain and heals our hearts. And then she wrote, again, being prompted by something, but she wrote this, my world was shattered and he picked me up and he has kept me breathing and I didn't know how I'd face another minute and he gave me the strength to do so. I stood in church daring God to heal my heart, crying in the most pain and agony I've ever felt. He gave me unimaginable strength and healing. He still does that daily. Jesus said, I am the life. And what he means is I've come to change your life radically now. You know, I came back from California and I realized that I, I focused on just one aspect of life. Okay. And I didn't talk enough about this particular aspect of life. But when Jesus says, I am the life, I think Jesus is saying, I think Jesus is saying, I am how you overcome death and live forever. Can I ask you a thoughtful question? Would you like to not die and live forever? Now, I know you say, hey, man, when I'm 90 and I'm so debilitated, I want to die. No, I'm talking about you're in your 30s and in your prime. Is there anyone here that would like to die? Wouldn't you like to live I think all of us want to live. If we were living in our prime and everything was, everything was like it is when we're in our 30s, 20s, 30s, and even 40s, 50s, everything starts to go downhill. Although 40s, I started getting glasses, and I won't tell you all the other stuff that started happening to me, but um, some of you that are older than me, you know, you know. But anyway, knowing that you will die as everyone else before you has died, would you like to know that you can rise from the dead and live again, never to die again? I know I, I, know I do. 
And I really believe all of us would say that. We don't want to die. We fight death. And Jesus is trying to tell us, though we die, yet shall we live. I can live again. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel has this vision. It's the valley of the dry bones. And God asks him, can these dry bones live again? And Ezekiel says, only you know. And then God says, to Ezekiel, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land, and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Now, I got to tell you, I always read that metaphorically. I always read that as if God's just talking to Israel, I'm going to bring you out of Babylon, I'm going to bring you back to the land. I I tell you with fresh eyes, I I think God was saying to Ezekiel, no, I am going to bring you back to life. All of my people, I will bring you back to to life, and I will put you in my land. And I tell you what, I am not a son of Abraham by genetics, but I am a son of Abraham by faith. And, and, and Israel is my people. Israel is God's people. I am God's Israel. And I am these people. I am this person. My son Shep is this person that God is going to restore to life and give eternal life to him in the world that God is creating for those who trust him and love him. Jesus is life. He's the only way to live forever, to overcome your upcoming death and to resurrect. So real to me now that Shep has died, more so than ever before. Number four, Jesus says, I am exclusive. If Jesus hasn't been clear, he wants to make sure he's clear right now. He says, no one comes to the Father but through me. He claims an exclusivity that others find so hard to accept. That there is only one way to God. There is only one truth. There is only one, one life. And it's him. There's no other way to make ourselves acceptable to God except through the Lord Jesus. Jesus is going to die because it's in the mind of God to die for our sins, to take our place. I I don't know why an infinite creator who has no beginning would choose to submit himself to the penalty of our sin, our death, because of our rebellion. Why he would choose to submit himself to our death so that he could forgive us. I don't understand all of that. All I know is that only God could fix our sin debt of death, and he did it. So nothing men do merits God's forgiveness. Listen, your your faith doesn't compensate for your sin. If faith saved you, if faith saved you, then Jesus would have no need to die. Faith doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Now, he appropriates his salvation by faith, but faith doesn't save you. Your humility, your morality, none of that saves you. Jesus saves you. He applies it to your life by your humble admission of your sin and your declaration, God, I need you. He applies it to you in that way. But Jesus and Jesus alone 
pays for our sin. That's why we say categorically salvation is by grace alone. That's why we sang about it so wonderfully this morning. Number five, Jesus says, I am God. Verse seven, if you had known me, he said to his disciples that evening, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Jesus makes this incredible statement that, hey, me and God are one. Philip, Philip calls him on it. And he says, Lord, doesn't call him on it, doesn't understand it. He says, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. And I wonder how many of us haven't said something similar to that. God, if you would just show yourself to me just for a second, it'd be enough. You ever prayed something like that? I know you have. At least most of us have. And, and, here, and here's what Philip says. I mean, he kind of grabs hold of this. Show us, God. That'll be enough for us. And then Jesus says in verse 9, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Let's be honest. Jesus made a similar veiled claim just a couple of minutes earlier when he said, you believe in God? believe also in me. How audacious is that? Can you imagine for me to say this morning to you, you believe in God, believe in me. That's pretty audacious, isn't it? That's what he did just a minute ago. And now he turns around and he unequivocally clearly says, hey, if you have seen me, you have seen God. He's in me and I am him. And, and, and I think he's speaking of the nature of God as being Trinitarian, three, three persons and yet one God, uh, inseparable in their unity, but distinct in their personhood. I read this illustration. Let me just give it to you. When I add coffee, creamer, and sugar, they are one. My wife calls it dessert. Yet there are still three separate entities in that cup, but from our perspective, inseparable. All, all, all illustrations fall short. Here's theology for you. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God has God is spirit. He has no body, but yet he took on our corporal physicality. He took on our creatureliness. And in doing so, the Bible declares that Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. And Jesus made that claim. He claimed that he, the creating, uncreated being, became one of his creatures. And you've heard this, this uh, what do you call them, syllogisms? You've heard this before. That's either true or not true, right? If it's, if it's, if it's not true, Jesus either knew it wasn't true or he didn't know it wasn't true. If he knew it wasn't true, and he claims to be the uncreated creator, then he's a liar. If he, know, if he doesn't know it's not true, right, that kind of makes him a fruitcake. And, uh, and if, he know, if it is true, then he's Lord. And so the syllogism goes like this. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And we have to make a choice on that. That's hard for many to believe, to accept. In California this week, I, I often talked about Jesus as God because that's who he is. And I say that I believe that this morning because of his resurrection. 
And finally, Jesus says, I am the means, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I could have been a coward and skipped those verses, but I decided I was going to tackle them anyway. Jesus is returning to the Father, and in just, in just, just under two months... And in just under two months, he's about to send his spirit who is going to indwell them and equip them and empower them. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Uh, What is Jesus telling them? I think what he's telling them is this, that I am going to be the means. I'm going to be the means by which you carry on this mission. Jesus said, when I go, you guys will do even greater things than I did. Let me talk about that for just a moment. That is such a hard passage, isn't it? You're going to do greater things than I did. You know, some people say, well, that means that there's men and women around, running around the world doing greater miracles than Jesus did. Uh, Personally, I think that's ridiculous. Just my thoughts, okay? Jesus turned water into wine. Um, He read minds. He, uh, He healed people from a distance and with his touch. Um... He fed 5,000. He fed 4,000 with little to no food. He walked on water. He healed blind people. He raised the dead numerous times. And though his disciples did some of these things, I don't even think in the book of Acts it comes close to replicating what Jesus did. So I don't think Jesus is trying to say, you're going to do greater things and you're going to do greater miracles than I've done. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what Jesus is saying, and again, there's a lot of suggestions, but this is the one that I'm not going to give them to them all. I'm going to give you just the one that resonates best with me. And it's this, that Jesus is saying the extent of your work is going to be so much greater than mine. Jesus came first to the Jews. God blinded so many of them in their unbelief. And Jesus said, but when I be lifted up, I'm going to draw all men to myself. And from the moment of the cross until now, the gospel has been going out across the world to the ends of the earth. And God's people have been doing that. When Jesus said, you're going to do greater works than me, I think he was saying that we're going to take the gospel to a much greater extent than Jesus ever did. Because he only lived there in, in Israel, barely off, very rarely making it outside of Israel. We're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But regardless, Jesus is saying, and I'm going to be the means. I'm going to be the one who empowers you. I'm going to be the one who gives you my spirit by which you can do this. You can take the gospel to the ends of the earth. On April 16, 2007, I don't pronounce his, his name right, but Mr. Cho killed 32 people, wounded many others in a horrific rampage at Virginia Tech. I think probably most of us remember that. I was glued to my TV, as I'm sure you were, and we were just struck with such grief. I mean, the whole nation mourned over that. That was maybe early on in, those, in, in mass killings, and we've had many since then. Officials at, the, at Tech, I guess it was, planned a memorial service to be televised to the nation, and uh, they determined that it should be an interfaith service. And so as the cameras rolled, a Buddhist quoted uh, the Dalai Lama, about the basic goodness of man. A Jewish woman read from Ecclesiastes 3. A Muslim read from the Quran and appealed to Allah. And a Lutheran pastor gave a brief, empty pet talk about sticking together and helping one another. But in the entire service, the name of Jesus was never mentioned. 
They omitted any reference to the Lord Jesus. And here's the reason why. It's because Christ claims about himself and what he proclaimed about who he is in the Bible are so specific and so exclusive that he is offensive to our pluralistic, all roads lead to God culture. Almost everything is tolerated except our Savior because of these hard sayings that he delivered. So the hard question this morning for all of us is what are you going to do with the hard sayings of Jesus? And, and yeah, I guess in a way, this is kind of mainly a, an evangelistic message, you know, because what are you going to do with the hard sayings of Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God except through him, and that he and God are one, and that he is the means by which all things take place. 